Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're coming into this webcast in the world. Um, we're excited, excited to be starting season number two on Future Proofing Now. Um, you know, similar to Netflix, I guess we've been re-up for another year, Andrea. And uh, this is the webcast and podcast that explores every single variant about the future and tells you what to do about it now. And I'm excited uh, to be talking about Vision 2020 for 2020. I know um, we're gonna wait maybe a minute or so for people to jump on and uh, we'll get started. I do wanna introduce my co-host, uh, Andrew Cates, uh, who is amazing and wonderful, and, um, and also Joanne, who's doing all of the work in the background that makes this work. So we might wait, uh, oh, let's call it another 30 seconds. Andrea, any, any missive to tell people as we start the new year? I'm excited because everything I thought was going to happen, I think isn't going to happen. And everything that I thought wasn't going to happen just happened. So uh, there's headlines, there's books, excited about 2020 and getting ahead of the future. Yeah, it's funny in promoting this webinar or webcast, I, uh, I had invoked a fellow Canadian, William Gibson, who I think his big quote was, the future's already been invented, it's just not evenly distributed yet. And I think we have a bone to pick with uh, Mr. Gibson, don't we? Like, we think there's going to be stuff that no one has thought about doing that uh, is going to be happening in 2020. And, and we might explore some of it in this uh, one today. Yeah, I think there's going to be two things. One is the obvious that we forgot to notice and do something about. And then the not so obvious that hits all of us by, takes all of us by surprise. So I think those are the two uh, 2020 lessons we'll talk about today. Well, and the interesting thing on this one, Andrea, we don't get a lot to talk uh, to each other on these webcasts. We thought, you know what, we've had about uh, 40 different panelists and special guests. Um, and we thought we'd just make this one between uh, the two of us and our audience online today, just um, A, just to see how it went, and B, um, I think we've been noodling on a whole bunch of different things about how 2020 looks like. So, um, so yeah, it's just me and you today. Excited about that. Uh, 2020 focus eye test. Um, hopefully your your eyes are not failing enough to um, to get the message at the bottom. I guess not even close. We're going to cover off four parts today. Um, you know, uh, we've got something what what we're calling meta drivers. I think there's five different types of behaviors and perspectives that is really going to drive decision makers this year. Um, we've got a simple kitchen science personal change readiness test that we want you to take with us today. I think myself and Anya will go through it and see what our point total out of 100 is going to be. Uh, I've looked at what we've posted over the last month on Future Proofing Next and taken the top five articles that got the most hits. And so we're going to talk about those things. And as well, some of you uh, may be intrigued because um, I think we promoted that we're going to expose it on this webinar. We have what's called the Change Makers Bookshelf, where we're going to take the 99 books that, um, you know, we're all about change, but there are books that have changed us. And so we've uh, nominated our 99 books. And um, yeah, I'll be interested to share that with you as well. So meta drivers, Andrea, uh, thoughts ahead of time in terms of just, uh, you know, you know, January 1 is almost an artificial touchstone in terms of when you go into another year. It's actually a lot of people in my world think September 1 is actually the uh, the adjustment period where people go back to work and school and what have you. But 
any kind of just overall thoughts as we look at 2020? It's, it's, you've got an election year in the U.S., so I'm not going to cover that one uh, as a Canadian, but you got a whole bunch of different change going on. Any things that you look at and go, wow, um, this, this will have a much greater role to play in 2020? To me, one of the big things is the people, every, everybody, every place I go to lately, they're talking about humans, you know, whether it's this kind of corny approach where you're saying, well, we're not employees, we're people. Uh, or the fact that the workforce, we've talked about a lot, you know, youth and, and not so youth and global differences. And so one of the things that I think is really important about this year is places where we can learn from each other on a global basis and places where we can accelerate change by seeing across the outside of our four walls. I think those are really going to be the most important things for us to train ourselves to do. I love it. Um, so we've identified kind of five big headlines, big one-worders, I guess, if you will, in terms of what I, I think we collectively thought was going to be a big part of 2020. Um, and the interesting thing is most trend experts come out and say, we uh, have ascertained what the future is going to look like. I think part of the future is knowing that it's going to be so very unpredictable, right? Um, you know, and I've got an example here. I've, I'm going to use a sports example. So uh, I'm not even too sure if I'm going to tune you out or not here, Andrea. But um, I thought I was going to do the sports example, Sean. I thought this was mine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead. Toronto and the NBA. No, no, I'll just throw it to you. <laughs> no, I wanted to. I want to see you like a worm on the fishing rod, just squirm on this one and kind of present this one. Nothing. Yeah, no, I, I don't want to go there. Uh, I, I, I know. To uh, one, one time there was a person who was a great client who asked me if I knew what ID10T was. And it was like this technology conversation. And he said, well, you know, we're going to go into ID10T. And I thought, I said, you know what? Let me just tell you right out. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> of course, it's IDIOT. So ever since then, I said, just, I have no idea how I would speak to this slide. So take it, Sean. Well, I mean, I will give you the compliment, though. I think uh, of most people I know, you can probably go ankle deep into many conversations before um, it starts to get a little bit, uh, you know, perspiring. Um, I just, uh, it, I remarked the other day, particularly as I watched uh, NFL football on the weekend and looked at the teams that were winning, these were the rank, the numbers aside, um, these cities were the, if you had put money down in uh, Las Vegas, what was the rank of the team that was expected to win? And so if you look at the 16, I guess what I'll call semifinalists across the four big sports in North America, apologies to our European listeners. Um, you look at a very interesting and strange situation that in this world of so much data, and you've probably seen it yourself, Andrew, it's like, you know, sports is swimming with fantasy sports and gambling, and there's so much data. Amidst all of this data, you're looking at a world that is very imperfectly trying to estimate who's going to win. So averagely, you would think, well, there should be a lot of number one, number two, number three rankings in here. Uh, by and large, people missed by a country mile. And it's just, I find it interesting as a touchstone for business at large that, you know what, I think the person that says I'm absolutely right about this in a meeting is the one that you probably have to raise your biggest spock in eyebrow to, right? Uh, I think certainty, um, and I laugh because myself and Andrea, 
have this affection, but also disdain for TED Talks, at least I do, in terms of just how certain those speakers are about what the future is going to look like. And it's like, I would love somebody in a TED Talk just to go, and I could be wrong, right? Um, so I don't know. Andrea, just in terms of unpredictability. So one of my favorite books was from Stephen Johnson, who wrote a book, Everything, something like Everything That's Good Is Bad For You Now, or vice versa. Um, I have it on my bookshelf, too. There you go. And it's not one of our our uh, bookshelf books, but it, but it's a really important thought because I remember just a few years ago, we we're like, stop your kids from playing video games. It's going to ruin their brains. And we were absolutely sure that that was really bad for us. And what I think now, you know, with all the game, <laughs> basically that's how you learn uh, R, Python, uh, Airtable, anything that's really useful these days. Uh, you, if you didn't have a gaming background, pretty much dead in the water. So everything that we think today is an absolute you know it's absolutely important for us to either be isolationists or collaborators it's really important for us to be a versus b i think that what we'll learn at the end of this webcast is that the ability to admit that we might be wrong see the early signs quickly and turn on a dime is probably the most important emerging skill for all of us to be much better at. And so whereas you and I, of course, are strategists and we look at research and data, I think that the, the talent that, we're, that we should think about is, is everything really bad and good or is that about to switch? And just to, to take it into a business form, uh, I think this was a conference board's kind of top 10. They just uh, released um, kind of what the top 10 CEO challenges were for this year. And I, it was interesting. I think they had about 18 different um, things they assessed. In the top 10, and certainly on the one, two, three, uh, were things that I don't know if CEOs have a really good understanding of how to predict. Um, you know, if you can predict when the next recession is going to happen, you could make a lot of money in terms of shorting stocks. Um, China, US global trade war seem to be kind of on a little bit of a mercurial kind of slant. Um, you've got an election this year, cybersecurity, I guarantee you, uh, will be a much bigger headline, even though it was a big one in 2019. And climate change, we've seen what's happened in Australia, as much as the general trend is toward um, extreme climate change, who knows where that's going to pop up. So just if I look at a CEO, your real job right now is, I think, managing risk. No, Andrew? Well, I think that the hard thing is to know what, where the risk is going to be. Um, and also, I think, I think the upside is the same thing. I, I, I hear, uh, this, this morning I was reading, we were rereading parts of the house that Jack Ma built, Duncan Clark's book from a few years back, and nice. how he, even he missed the fact that, you know, like when given the chance to invest in Alibaba stock, he said, no, thank you. Um, and so I think that all of these economic predictions are really hard to play and, and make a move on. So I think that the ability for a CEO to feel confident in this particular moment is very challenging. And I think that what that means is that what we have to think about as a CEO, you know, as a leader in a company, is once again, the humility of knowing that maybe the bet that we just placed needs to be recast. Yeah, I think humility is a big one. I don't know if that's one normally associated with a lot of different uh, CEOs, although uh, we're going to get to a book later that I think um, kind of goes to some of the humility of somebody that you love. 
Um, I think another unpredictability is we've seen a lot of different social movements that have really changed how people think within a certain period of time. And, and two I've profiled here on Google Trends, Occupy Wall Street and Me Too. The challenge with social movements and trends is, um, as we see by these two charts, we kind of lose interest, don't we? Um, you know, a piece of machinery, a financial implement, they tend to be fairly consistent over time and you can predict and you can um, kind of uh, do an algorithm to assess how things are gonna decline or to increase. But social movements are quite chaotic by their very nature and the problem in this 24 seven world, and you've got something there that yeah. is uh, by one of our friends. Um, yeah, they're very chaotic and unpredictable. So uh, impart your cascades kind of thinking on this. Yeah, angle. so I'm going to jump in. And by the way, we, we, these just happen to be things that we admire. We don't, we don't get any uh, promotional <laughs> uh, compensation for this. But Greg Sattel wrote a book that is around some very interesting experience he had with the Orange Revolution. And he talks about what it really takes. And I'll take it to, to business because we're really not here to talk politics. But the, the takeaways for businesses, the notion of how you actually build, if, if we as business leaders are trying to engender others to believe and, and to support causes and to make change, which is what we know has to happen because status quo isn't going to get us there. For, as business leaders, we need, to in, we need to figure out what it is that will stick. And so Occupy, Me Too, you know, if they spike and then they go away, what are the ways that the residual impact can still be maintained. And I think that the, the, the notion, you know, Greg talks about it, maybe we'll have him on sometime, uh, about you know, having these keystone projects and having a structure for leading these revolutions within our companies, I think is really important. And in 2020, there's no question that that's going to be important, especially as um, we try to be uh, acknowledge that these become a flash in the pan, especially with social media, there's a huge spike and then a decline. So what do we do as leaders to make something really important stick? I like your point about residual effects as well, right? Like it, it really, even though there's this lightning rod moment, it's, it's you know, monitoring and managing these trends is almost like being a nightclub owner where it's just like, you know, most nightclubs go to business in about six or nine months because people lose interest. Um, but is there something that you can actually galvanize around that is less about the, the sizzle and more about the substance? Well, and, but, I'll, and I'll actually add one thing to that because later we'll talk a little bit about, you know, some of our favorite books. There's one that I really like by Mark Benioff, Trailblazer, and we'll talk about it in the book section. But this notion of, uh, can you sit on the sidelines anymore? So, you know, or, and, and the notion of today's leaders is unfortunately we can't. And so we have to learn these lessons of this futurability and the ability to lead these movements and to have the, a, a new dynamic, not the top down uh, military mindset, but a new dynamic around, you know, being agents of change. Yeah. Um, the last part about unpredictability, I, I, I'm not a regular reader of treasury and risk. Trust me, I'm not. Um, but uh, I love the fact that there's somebody that works for the New York Fed who um, I don't think their official title is a black swan hunter, but essentially they're part of something called an ACT, which, you know, essentially pokes holes at most of the assumptions that um, the Fed makes and kind of is there to go, what of this basic assumption that we thought operated this whole entire financial um, system? was wrong. 
And so, um, you know, much as military has something, I think they called in the article, the red team that kind of pokes at different assumptions that military leaders are making. It comforted me that at least the financial uh, arm of the U.S. was thinking about what could go massively wrong quickly, um, given what happened in 2008. So any thoughts on this one, Andrew? No, I, th I think that the ability for us to look at data and figure out what to do about it is absolutely impossible these days because we have more data than we've ever had. We have more ways of, of lying about things as we'll talk about in a little bit. And so I, I actually think that in the old days, I don't know if people remember scenario planning. I remember in the days of Royal Dutch right. Shell, there was a lot of scenario planning. And then uh, I remember talking to people at Intel and saying, you know, all the scenario planning that you do, and if you still miss an entire, you know, if you decide that you're going to do mobile or not do mobile, you can still see something and make the right or the wrong decision. And so I think, I, I, I think that we all as a community this year have to think through how to look at anomalies and figure out if they're the early signs of something that's coming or just a blip. And, yeah. and I think we all have to help each other think that through. Um, so first headline was unpredictability. Second one, I think, um, and, and we've really endorsed this for this year to the point where our biggest research project is around the future of work and learning and building new skill sets. But the idea of relearning and generalist skill sets, the, the day and age of I went to school, I got my degree, and uh, no further shall I take it in terms of my learning are gone. Um, it's gone from how do you fend off automation? Uh, I'll share with you a, a leadership skill set ranking that we had pulled together and, and not surprising what happened. Oh, just go back one, oh, Andrew, if you could. Sure. Uh, adaptive intelligence came to the top. Uh, soft skills is what CEOs are really looking for nowadays, which is different than any time in the last 50 years where people were probably looking for kind of, we need you to have these hard technical skills. And if you look at the new C-suite, new roles are being offered up. I'm not a big fan of extending the C-suite, but if you look at where the new roles are being adding up, they're, they're being um, added to address some of the challenges of this relearning and generalist skill set. So any top line thoughts before we get into some of the supporting stuff? Let's, uh, let's, dive, let's dive in. Yeah. Just, uh, a little bit busy here, but certainly the top part of this chart looks at uh, what are the things that AI isn't going to automate? And if you look at managing others and applying expertise and, and the people side of things, um, very tough to automate. If you look at physical work and data processing, very easy to automate. And so um, somebody had pulled a list of uh, seven, I should say number six there, but seven different skill sets that are gonna be really tough over the next decade, 20 years for AI to actually approximate to a human. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I think learning around just um, some of the softer skill sets uh, that are exposed here is going to be crucially important in the future. Um, we've shared this in a previous uh, webcast, but I thought it important again to actually look at this. We looked at 21 different change leadership skill sets, and what came to the top was adaptive intelligence. So if you look at what uh, future leaders are going to have a real premium for, it's going to be not necessarily what they know, but the ability to learn quickly and actually look at a new situation and learn differently. So, and chime in whenever you want on uh, our stuff. No, nope, I'm, I'm good with this. If you look at where CEOs are looking at, I think 77% of them say, look, we 
uh, are looking for two critical skills and we don't know where to find them. And certainly we don't have enough of them in the company. And uh, those are creativity and innovation. But if you look at this, this gamut of four skill sets in the upper right quadrant, you're looking at things that are very soft in nature um, that um, carry a real premium nowadays. So I'll, I'll chime in here because uh, just Friday, and, and we're so lucky because we, we do projects that bring us into the, these conversations all the time with leaders. And so just last Friday, I was in a conversation with this global company that has a, a large presence in Asia. And they're trying to find a CEO of a large you know, global division. And they were complaining because, and I won't mention which firm, but a large HR firm had just done a profile of what they needed. Uh, first of all, that person doesn't exist. And so they know that they'll get a little of this with a little of that and then have to fire that person and then get another person and sort of have a search replace uh, in, embedded because it's impossible to find the person. But, this, but the second part is of a three-part argument is that the metrics by which we're going to judge these leaders have simply not kept up. And so we say that we want to hire people with soft skills, but we know, Sean, you and I, that mm -hmm. the person will go, you know, go down quickly if they can't bring about the expectations of either the board or the, or, or the shareholders or the stakeholders. And so we are in a very tough time for top leaders because the metrics by which they're judged and the skills for which they're hired are not in sync. Can I add a third one? The education yeah. system that has brought them up. Um, you know, most people nowadays are saying, hey, put your kids into STEM and digital. And, and I think that's really crucially important, at least to have a fluency. But, you know, some of those things are going to be automatable in the future. I mean, it really comes back to being a human as being something that may give you a lasting career in the future. And um, I, I think that might be a third plank there. And then finally, if you look at just what are the new C-suite titles that have been added over the last five years, innovation, digital, strategy, um, data to a certain extent, and growth, um, even ethic. Actually, all of these, uh, when I consider what's missing in a C-suite, um, it's really trying to get at some of the skill sets that um, appear to be required company-wide. And we're going to argue, and I hope that Sean and I are in agreement about this. You, you know, I don't want to put Sean on the spot and suggest that we guess because in five years, when we look at this again, what will the new position be? But we believe that there is a future beyond innovation and that the, 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 the downside of the expectations of, say, the chief innovation officer is that the promise of, of being able to be this nimble unicorn that can figure out across multiple in industries and across the globe what to do and how to respond and how to please everybody. That was just an impossible role and hopefully a lot of us are in the innovation world. But when we say that we think that it's time to move past that, there's a feeling that we're going to keep arguing about. Um, there's uh, In about 2004, uh, Michael Tushman and, and Charles O'Reilly had a HBR article around the ambidextrous organization. And it was this notion, in those days, it was exploit, ex, exploit and explore. It's been upgraded to think, updated to think of execute and experiment. And we believe that there's this third capability that needs to be overlaid on all of these C-level people, the risk, the growth, the ethics, the data, the strategy, the digital, and the innovation, which is this idea that there's a, a, a 
an ability to respond to what's emerging within each of these. So that when we talk about specialist generalist, um, I think that there's gonna be blurring between these roles. And I think that if I were gonna make, put my money on anything for 2020, it's gonna be a little bit different profile of even you know, a chief risk officer and a chief innovation officer. You know, I, I think that they become the same. And you know, I think there'll be a reconfiguration of these of the C-suite. I agree. I agree. X gets the square. Um, I really do think if you become a chief innovation officer, there probably is a role for one, but you pro should probably only hang out for about two years before your job is done. Right? There you and, go. And, so I think half the people on the on the call will now hang up. But um. <laughs> <laughs> all our no. chief innovation officers for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's uh, let's keep moving on these uh, category definitions are crumbling. I'm going to make a statement here that I think anybody who's chasing market share of whatever particular category are crazy. Um, I know you have to index versus something and tell your manager that you're doing good or bad, but in a world where there's so much uh, category redefining that's going on, um, it's crazy. Are you a tech company or a media company? We're going to share a couple of charts in a minute about stuff. Genders. I mean, I hate to go like really large on this, but if you look at just male and female, toys, um, fashion, a whole bunch of different things in society are saying even that definition is getting a little bit murkier. Um, we talked in our last webinar about thing, people like Donald Glover and just, um, you know, actors are no longer actors anymore. They have many different things they participate in. And I would argue that for the most part, if you're a product, if you're not in the service business as well, you're probably increasingly becoming irrelevant. So yeah, category definitions are coming down. Um, as evidence, Amazon, look where Amazon participates. Who knew, who would have said five years ago that Amazon would have uh, been both participating in the number one gaming uh, channel uh, called Twitch and also owned one of the best retailers for grocery Whole Foods. That's a pretty big range there. Well, and I also think it's interesting that one of the number one things that you and I get asked to do when we work with companies and with teams is what they call Amazonification. How, how to get the thinking from the siloed mindset and these and the capabilities of a company being able to be market leaders and have market share, as you said, that whole concept is hard for people to do. And it's one of the top things that we're requested to do, which is, can, can you teach us how to do Amazonification? <laughs> or alphabetification, if you want. <laughs> um, I know it's a little bit uh, meatier in terms of a handle, but you know, certainly if you look at where Google participates and some of its entries into healthcare and finance in the last couple of years, um, you get a real sense for, okay, if you don't think Google is a threat to your business in most categories, you're probably got the, the wool, um, you know, firmly ensconced over your eyes. Well, and I'm also going to, I know later we're going to talk books, but there is a book called New to Big, and it's a mindset that David Kidder and Christina Wallace have around letting companies operate like, uh, a, sort of like VCs, and this notion of having a portfolio and, and zooming out and thinking from a portfolio perspective about what's going to drive value generation and value creation and value delivery over time, like a VC would, is another thing that we get asked to, to do for companies, right? So if they're really, really good at the current skill set, we, we joke about, you know, making the spoons, but they can't think about like what should come next after the spoons. 
So it's, it's hard. And no one was really taught that. I think to your point, the education of training leaders to think this way and do it well. I, I don't think very many companies can, can really claim to be an alphabet approach. I mentioned about celebrities, Reese Witherspoon, she produces, she directs, she acts. Um, so my hope is we have general agreement that if you're in a category, it's probably going to be discombobbled over the next uh, couple of years and it may be called something else. Um, all right, we'll go through the last two. I'll, quick go, I'll go back. Actually, I, I skipped that slide too quickly. It's, it's actually something that I think re relates to what you said about the generalist versus the specialist because and I'm not saying I like or don't like Reese Witherspoon, but I think that there was also an opportunity in the market because there was a con confluence of forces. So women wanting to have the voice and the presence in the market in Hollywood and this notion of, of being paid equally and realizing that if you want to have a, a, a shift in a market, you need to take leadership and take ownership. And once again, we're not here to talk Hollywood or to talk about Reese Witherspoon necessarily, but the lesson for companies is there are a lot of places where we think, well, you know, someone needs to drive in this area, whether it's sustainability or whether it's being able to um, have younger workers really want to work with your company or whatever the issue is. And at a certain point, you realize that we need to stretch this way and be multi-hyphened as corporate leaders. Yeah, so I mean, let's not leave it as a celebrity comment, uh, whether you're an entrepreneur or um, somebody in corporate land, uh, you know, you should be aspiring to have a hyphen in your name. You are an innovator slash marketer. You are a finance person slash eth ethicist. Um, um, last couple of things. I, I, this one, I think if you were going to have a lightning um, kind of rod moment in terms of 2020, I think just uh, our ability to trust anything in 2020 is going to come under some level of attack. Um, you're in an election year. Some of the technology that's available to us to actually make some of the stuff happen, it's crazy. And if you look at authoritative sources, there are very few left in the world. And, and candidly, it's funny how people have invested in technology companies as their authoritative source for information. Um, they're more willing to trust those people than they would a government or a religion or anything that maybe perhaps standardly has been uh, beacons of trust in the past. And I think we will have a lot more cybersecurity issues within uh, 2020. So I'm um, not to say, uh, you know, have your back up against everything every single day of your life this year, but certainly I think um, trust is going to come under some scrutiny. So I'm going to say something optimistic. I, I've been accused many times of being the rational optimist. I always have tons and tons of facts, but my, my, my optimism around business is, is consistent. And there's a company that I love called Soul Machines in Auckland. And they have, a few years ago, they came out with something called Baby X. And uh, we were really lucky to, to, to see Mark uh, speak about this and, and present about it in Lisbon this year. And what I think is interesting about this is that Baby X is a kind of AI-enabled interactive baby and works in real time in a way that's very human. I mean, there's no question. And it, of course, now this technology can inform chatbots. And the dark side of this is, yes, you can be duped into thinking that something isn't a chatbot when it is a chatbot. And I think we talked with Navrina Singh about this, you know, and her experiences in Microsoft with the chatbot experiments. And I, and, but I also think that there's a beautiful side to this, which is we are learning what it really takes to have these human interactions. And I wouldn't mind having some of the chatbots that I interact with 
be less like that futuristic sci-fi type of chatbot and more like a real human. And I know that, you know, not to be, um, I know at CES, there was a whole thing around like, you know, human sex toys, you know, things that can be, feel like they're relationships. <laughs> I know people are marrying robots in Japan, right? So there's that weird side. But the beautiful side of this, I think, is that a lot of the ways that humans can make uh, these automated tasks h horrible can also be done to make them quite wonderful. So when we talk about trust and we talk about this, um, you know, what's happening next, I think we have to be optimistic that there are companies that can use the human in a really good way to have our customer experience be really very pleasant and very rich. And I think it can change business for the good. I'll take the positive on that one too and just say you know, maybe we'll have, it won't be for everybody, but for the 30% of the world that wants their facts, not something polarized, maybe a return to non-sensationalist journalism, right? Like um, you know, what is the consumer reports meets journalism in the future that you can actually rely on to be factual? Um, maybe there's, there's an angle for, for somebody. I, to like, I, I, I like that. I'll, I'll think about that one. I like that. Just in terms of just how polarized things are, it's not just affecting how we vote for people, but it affects how we look at different things. And I took this just as one of 12 different charts that saw how Republicans and how Democrats um, kind of had seen the healthcare system. And if you look at even over the last decade, you know, we're not going back generations, you know, it's been a pretty tight concentration between these two. And now you've seen this, this massive disparity in terms of is this a system that's delivering value for you or not? So, um, so yeah, it's, it is percolating into other parts of society. Certainly the lawmakers and people that are focused on elections are very interested, particularly given what went down in 2016. Uh, this one I found fascinating. Uh, just, you know, people trust their doctors, people trust their military. Amazon and Google, they trust number three and four on this list, uh, which, you know, I know Google says do no evil, but I mean, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of great people that are ethical that work at Google, but at a higher level, Google loves your data, right? So, you know, there's a vulnerability there. If you look at the right-hand side, though, uh, you know, if you look 50, certainly 100 years ago, what people trusted, those are no longer the things that people are trusting. I saw Hollywood at 4%, which is interesting. I, uh, I just saw the Ricky Gervais kind of um, just... Uh, putting most of Hollywood on a stake and um, not surprisingly it played well, given what I'm seeing on this chart. Well, I have a, uh, I, I did make a move this morning. I bought some stock in Tom Hanks. You really should, shouldn't yeah, you? No, exactly. Um, I, do, I do think that globally, um, this has been something that's been really, 2019 was the most troubling for me since I sit in Silicon Valley slash Bay Area in the United States, realizing that if you put globally, trust. Um, I would say that the United States has really gone down and probably Silicon Valley with it in terms of global perception. And I think that that's, that's another really interesting thought is where trust, who will, who will allow to steer our thinking and who will do business with. And, and this idea of, we call it the splinter net the ability for our data to be uh, going along lines of where we, where we trust a country, where we trust a purveyor of the truth. Um, I, I, I think that it's up for grabs and I, I actually can't make a prediction about that, but I think we should look at this one globally. 
And then finally, and I know we've heard CEOs and different people in government and kind of luminaries and thought leaders talk about, you know, let's not just focus on profit. Um, but I really think there may be a moment in 2020 where we start to put some real teeth in that. And I think just in terms of what we're seeing environmentally, um, uh, I'm, I'll show a front page of uh, the one of the biggest financial entities in the States. And it's interesting to see the front page of the website and what it communicates. Um, how communities are being left behind, even though, you know, there's these thriving, they say the economy is great, but really in the US in particular and other places, uh, you're really living two lives. You can live in, you know, let's take a uh, South, uh, mm, let's say Arkansas. You can live in Arkansas or you can live in Seattle. Those are two very different experiences in terms of the economy growing. And then finally, diversity and inclusion remains. I think there's some headway being done on diversity and inclusion, but I think uh, companies are realizing it's not only the right thing to do, it's also the innovative thing to do to have a, a very diverse and inclusive um, kind of culture. And this was uh, what I was saying, Goldman Sachs. Um, it got a lot of headlines and then it's kind of petered away, but um, they announced a $750 billion fund to invest in nine social impact areas, which um, this is no longer like, let's spend 250 million here and 750 billion. The whole um, economy of the world, I think, is about, what, $80 trillion now. So for one company to put that much money into this is um, there's not only a need to do it societally, but there's also an economic motivation potentially as well. And then uh, in terms of just uh, the environment and what people should be doing, certainly people have seen the weather around them and saying, look, the government has a role to play here. Uh, they need to be doing something. And this is across all three different political stripes. Um, and that, uh, yeah, so hopefully there will be a political will to do something. Um, in terms of reining in big tech, uh, I know you're from Silicon Valley here. Uh, there's very few things that you can get a very liberal person and a very conservative person to agree on. Would we agree? This is one of those things that they go, yes, I would strongly support some level of uh, policy breaking up or at least um, making uh, a lot more com competition within kind of the tech world. Um, yeah, I just. Um, so this is one where I'm going to jump in and, and you know that I just spent a bunch of time in China last year and, and the differences between the United States and China, I think, are really significant. I, I'm not as familiar with other places in the world with regards to this, but I, I am really familiar with this issue with regards to business in those two regions. And I think it's really a double-edged sword because you have to trust somebody. And I know that, you know, the same way that we were trying to figure out if monopolies were a good thing or a bad thing. Well, it, you know, the baby bells and the breakup of the, all the telecom, it, you know, I kept thinking that, for instance, I was going to be paying less to watch movies these days. That really didn't pan out. And so there is an argument to be made that breaking up these companies or, you know, somehow um, uh, figuring out a way to make, you know, to, to have more people play in this is not necessarily going to work. So I'm, I, I, I guess I, I'm skeptical about this one. I just don't know that breaking up big tech is the only approach. And by contrast, of course, we know from that other book that we talk about all the time, The Big Nine by Amy Webb, mm -hmm. that China has decided to do the opposite, to be extremely explicit, to decide exactly who gets which, you know, Tencent, Alibaba, um, and the um, 
and uh, the the um, uh, the large and Baidu and and sort of large companies that are they, they carve it out and it's like this is yours and then there's a, a very different approach. So I'm not sure that breaking it up is the only way to do this. Yeah, um, I'm not too sure, and I've just uh, lost the screen. I think Andrea, I'm not too sure if um, if it's um, going still on yours. Uh, it's going on mine. I don't know. Maybe someone can let us know if it's still going. Oh, there we go. Back again. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, I'll just move on because uh, we got other stuff to cover and people want to hear about what our 99 books are as well. Um, this is a kind of, a, I love the distressed communities index. It sounds really self-important, but uh, if you're in a blue postal code, you're probably pretty, feeling pretty good about yourself. If you're in a red postal code, probably not. And um, as much as we say there's this great economy going, I think it's, um, you know, people are getting frustrated because it's not necessarily benefiting everybody equally. All right, I thought we'd do a quick five minute test in terms of um, change is great and change is something that uh, we can study as kind of an interesting intellectual curious exercise. But what if the change is focused on you? And so we pulled together kind of a 15 kind of variable test to say, hey, um, have you done any of this stuff? And I've tried to bring this down into your regular world. Maybe you can even look at the, uh, the points that we have on this and look at something in your regular life that you've done. So five different areas, one, knowledge. So, um, you know, both learning, curiosity, and openness. And maybe we'll go, we'll go through this ourselves here quickly, Andrea. Have you learned a tangible new skill and put it into action in the last three months? Yes or no? Yes, I have. So you would probably have something out of 10 points, probably neighboring in the eight, nine, 10, depending I think, on how. I think that's a 10. The, the learning thing is always something that I, um, I force myself to do. And, uh, but, but that's, ba that's probably balanced by some of the other elements. So yeah, I'd give myself a 10 on that. Now, I think there's a second piece to that new skill too. Have you put it into action? I know um, certain friends of mine love doing new things or at least learning about new things, but never actually implement that thing, right? And, you know, I would love to build a log cabin home, but they probably haven't done that yet. Um, do you have a natural curiosity? And, and one of my telltale signs for influencers back 15 years ago when I ran a word of mouth um, uh, company was, when I travel home from work, do I frequently take different routes? So, Andrea? No. No. So, you're always doing the same route because of efficiency? Yeah, it's just like, why change it if it ain't broke? So, <laughs> I am absolutely guilty of this one. And uh, it's, it's consistent on personality tests that I take as well. When I find something that works for me, I, I don't spend a lot of time doing, doing re-engineering re of it. What about, what about restaurants? Uh, you know, given your choice on a Friday night to go out to the same restaurant that you know and love or a completely new different restaurant for a different experience, what would you choose? So, so, so the actual truth is same. All right. So I've missed you on this one. You would, you would probably rank this in like the one to two arena perhaps, but I know you're a curious soul. And then finally, um, are you not only have an appetite for learning curiosity, but you're open to actually, you know, have different worldviews on things and be flexible in terms of how you see the world. I don't know if this should be all about you and me, Sean. But I don't know. You're, you're the proxy think, for the audience. Yeah. So, so what I think interesting about this is um, I think so. But what I think is important about this one is do others view you that way? Yes. And I know yep. it as a leader in meetings and, and with projects, I tend to get a role and 
stay consistent within that and sort of represent that point of view and that mindset. So I, I don't know if other people feel that way, but you know, I think I'm open-minded and broad-minded, but uh, you know, let's ask the people around you. And that's what we think the litmus test really should be. Yep. Let's move on to the next one in terms of motivation. We like to challenge ourselves. You know, you've attempted to achieve something very new over the last three months. Um, and it's not only challenging yourself and being motivated to do that yourself, but also in the face of resistance or people that don't find that necessarily popular, what you're doing, you know, have you been able to persevere through it um, as one of the characteristics, I think, that change agents have in abundance. And then finally, when faced with all of this stuff, can you be inventive, creative, and resourceful in terms of doing stuff? Um, so, so I'll make an observation on this list instead of a confession. Um, <laughs> the, obs the observation is, uh, because once again, this is about corporate leadership, that it has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about later. And I know that Ashok Kalanswari from Saxo Bank was on a webcast a few months ago and talked about psychological safety. And I think that we can be trained as leaders to either provide or not provide psychological safety for ourselves because the organization has slapped our hands or the teams that we're on. And so I think that the, the takeaway from, from this category is that the real impact is if we're expecting people to be resourceful and resilient, but we're punishing them every time it goes wrong, are we able to you know, really, are we able to really create that psychological safety that we know is important for the change to happen and stick? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting scenario. I do think this is a, a less explored area of how to get change done because I think there is the business context and there's the personal context. And a lot of times people will um, blame the other side. Like I would be this great if it wasn't for my business and the business is saying, oh, uh, we'd be better if our people would only do this. And I think uh, there needs to be an integration of the two, I think, so. Totally agree. Um, you know, I, I know you'd probably uh, mark yourself high on this given our, our book writing and our webcast together. It's like, we hate when things are slow. We want to move quicker um, and do it when we see that the price of failing is higher than the price of change. And so we have this appetite to actually try to improve and um, productivity, like being busy and take on difficult and audacious challenges. I know when I worked uh, in a much longer previous life, I worked at an agency where 20 people would be around a table talking about stuff. And you quickly gathered that there was probably two or three people that were in the urgent, let's do something productive here. And, and everybody else was kind of bystanders and passengers. So, um, yeah. Well, I think this gets back to your black swan uh, concept where there's a need to think fast and think slow here and yep. certainly be busy, be productive, be agile. But as, as we know, if you're going really fast in the wrong direction, it, it, it's that zooming out moment that can be really important. And I know you and I believe in this notion of this, when, when people start down a path and, and you have to take a break and get everyone in the same room and say, we need to revisit what we're seeing. We need to revisit our North Star. We need to state very explicitly as a leadership team what we think our future state should be and we need to commit to something. And that takes a pause. That means stop being so busy, get out of your office, sit in a different way with the people that you work with 
and get out of that productivity mode. So I think that there's a need to think fast and think slow. That's a good point. Risk reward, do you like taking on risk? Do you like to be seen to be different and maybe taking on that risk? And do you have a very high achievement bar? Um, you know, I think in corporate life, we make different risk calculations. Everybody does. Uh, and I think the people that are more inclined to take on what I would view as acceptable risk um, are probably people that um, should be, um, you know, being advancing and being promoted inside companies. Well, I was thinking about the books we'll talk about later, you know, and if you think about whether it's um, Jack Ma or Satya Nadella or Mark Benioff or anyone who's viewed as, as a leader, there's a consistency to their beliefs and principles. And I think that at the end of the day, there is a distrust for people who are viewed as always making change and always being up for anything versus the rudder that's firmly, you know, like you, you know what the course is. There's resilience around it, but that rudder is set and people understand what a leader stands for and that teams understand that, you know, once they have the ability to sit in a room and disagree, but get very clear about alignment before they start getting so, you know, busy. Um, I think that a lot of times that's one of the places that innovation gets a bad name, to be honest, is they're viewed as somewhat um, flash in the pan, right. bright, shiny object. So I think that that perception can actually, um, even if in our hearts we want to be that person, it can really work against us in corporations. Certainly there's, a, there's an acceptable band, I think, in corporate life, but outside of that band, either slower, or less riskier, or, or too much risk and too, too fast uh, can get you in trouble. I know from that personally. <laughs> and the last three, uh, I've called it a spree just to, for, for lack of a different uh, word. You know, are you generally optimistic? And we've talked about being rational optimists, but, you know, are things going to be better? Or can you believe that they're better around the corner? Um, do you have energy to do that? And I have mentioned those words that Ashok had mentioned in previous webcasts, psychological safety. So it's not only your own energy, but providing that energy to other people. And do you, are you people friendly? Yeah. You know? uh, and I guess why let Ms. Tessa, uh, lunch is a horrible thing to waste. Have you invited somebody new to lunch over the last month? Um, I know I have, but I think I dropped into it. I'm not too sure if uh, other people have. So well, there's I know, your four I, out of 100. I, yeah, and I know that, I know that we're um, trying to get to the next topic as well. My final on this is that the reason this is important is that it's been proven that change within an organization absolutely has to involve change within individuals. You know, there's, there's no way to separate them. And I think that, that that's, that's the jury's back. Yeah. And so this is where it's really important for us to do a bit of a reset with ourselves as we're trying to promote some new or novel approaches within our companies, whether it's a business model change or a technology change or any sort of innovation. Uh, we're going to go through these real quickly because I think we do want to get to our books. Uh, I looked at the top five things that uh, the miracle of Bitly is uh, you can actually track when and how and how many kind of clicks and hits get to these were the top five articles that we had posted over last month. Um, I like Venkat's kind of uh, dissertation here about, you know, we've, everything was disruption, disruption, disruption. People don't want disruption. Like people want change. People want effective change. And I think he wrote a pretty compelling article about, you know, I think one of his examples was blockchain. And it's like, can in 2020, we have practical blockchain moments that actually provide some utility as opposed to just, you know, create value for the group of people that got in early, right? 
uh, we're focusing so much time on the future of work and, uh, uh, and trying to not leave behind. I think Addie's article here was about just um, making sure that all of us are participating in this new wave. Rethinking McKinsey, uh, maybe it plays to our strength here, Andrew, in terms of consultancies are really being scrutinized and being thought of differently. It, um, there's some really good language in here about how things used to be for McKinsey and the big consultancies and how things have changed. My only comment here is that the same way that the religion has gone down to a, to a very low percentage in terms of trust, I think that the parallel here is really very obvious, you know, disrupting the management priesthood. We don't trust that anymore. And we know that there's another way. Uh, fascinating article. Um, this personally might've been one of my favorite ones over the last month, the truth about open offices and how they had monitored in this HBR article, um, people and where they spent their time and do open offices promote, uh, kind of the engagement that, uh, you might think, cause that was, I think one of the guiding forces for, for taking down all these walls and some really interesting fresh reality in terms of what actually happens in open offices uh, and the benefits that aren't necessarily gained by doing it. Well, I'll say something very quick about this. And I, I, I've, I know I've spoken about it before, but I've never laughed as hard as when I looked over the shoulder of a client in a large automotive company and they had a, supposedly an, an open office. And on their calendar, it said WFC, which meant working from car because the only the right. only way that they could get privacy was to go into their car and get a phone call that was private. So I thought this is pretty ironic. You know, this is stop the madness. And anybody under 40, if they're in an open office environment, what are they doing? They're texting each other like kids at a, a birthday party. Or, uh, or they're on the Slack channel. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, final one, a bit of a selfish, uh, shameless plug, but um, we spent a lot of time doing an article about uh, generalist versus specialist and exploring it from um, the mode of innovation. Uh, have a look at it. I think I've come on the side of the fact that generalists will rule the world one day, but maybe not yet. All right. Uh, we have what's called the Change Makers Bookshelf, or I might have called this the $3,000 Innovators Bookshelf, because if you total up the 99 books on our list, they're probably that much money that it would take to buy all of them. But um, we actually had a number of our champions provide us some, there's so many good suggestions. I was trying to get them into six neat categories, seven, I guess, if you include this catch all other category. Um, and so let's go through them because I think people are curious. I know this has been dog eared on my desk for about uh, four or five months as I've rifled through it thinking, wow, what a really colorful, interesting book in terms of bringing to life some of the skills and mindset of innovation. And I know we've adopted that same approach with our book. If you look at the next slide, I think there are 15 books about business transformation and innovation that we've considered. Um, any any uh, ones on this list, Andrew, that you go, oh, a definite must have in anybody's uh, bookshelf? What, what I like about this is that we are in a transition from realizing that in a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, that everybody needed to have an entrepreneur's mindset and an innovator's, you know, let's say design thinking mindset to entrepreneur's mindset 
to team level mindset. And now what I think is interesting is at the bottom, and I'm not advocating on behalf of this, but I do think it's a really damn good idea to think about this holistically. And so I, I'll, I'll just speak to new to big again, that this notion of looking at our companies like portfolios, being thinking like in our investors and our stakeholders and understanding that value isn't just the ability to come up with a new idea at, 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 at a team level, but to do three things. One is to, to do it at scale. The second is to make sure that it happens because a great idea at scale that everybody undermines isn't going to happen well. And that the other one is, as we said earlier, looking at this portfolio cross industry, like the alphabets and the, and the Amazons. I think it's, I think this would be viewed in my mind as a, as a, um, a migration from the, individual unit basis to a portfolio basis. And I think that's only going to, I think we're going to start at number 15 and move forward in the next 10 years. Uh, so, I mean, I can't uh, get away from my pedigree. I was a former CMO in a number of different places and I've got a number of really interesting marketing books, but it really is this yin and yang. I love Cialdini's uh, psychology of influence and his six principles in terms of how to influence people or communicate. But I also love Reid Hoffman's blitzscaling kind of stuff and, and what it means for actually growing a business lightning fast in the future world. So I think the marketing suite plays with these two different ideas of, you know, what are some of the classic motivations of being a humanistic marketer and what are the things that we can really just engineer growth hacking. And if you look at the next uh, slide, uh, you get 15 of the faves that are there. Um, a number of people I think we both know. Special mention to my fellow Canadian, Malcolm Gladwell and the tipping point. Uh, I once uh, built an entire business around the notion of his, uh, is tipping point and the three types of people that exist out there. And I'll call out your book, Wikibrands, because I actually think it was pretty visionary. And the, the notion that a brand was not going to be done from the inside out, but that it was going to be done by a crowd was, was very important for everyone to start thinking about. I think the next level of this is now we know that that's been the case with these multiple business models and ways of developing and defining value and crossing over the industry lines, what is, what is a brand gonna look like in the next five to 10 years? I think that's gonna be a really important question. We also love this one. Uh, I think it's been one of our models in terms of, okay, as we produce our own book, um, this one just seems to bring to life a lot of different things in a provocative design friendly fashion. Let's look at the, the follow up list. Um, uh, any favorites on this one? I. Uh, yeah, my favorite, you know, is going to be Creative Construction by Gary Pisano. And the reason that I say that is not only do I think Gary's just a really great uh, thinker, but it's the, it's the beginning of the next era. It's a very well-researched and yet optimistic, realistic view of what really happens if a company's in a mindset where they go, well, you know, we're going to have Creative Destruction, Joseph Schumpeter, 1938 okay, we're just doomed to failure versus the truth, which is what Gary Pisano discovered, which is what does it really take to have creative construction? And he talks about, and I've said this many times, how you renovate your kitchen while you're living in your house. So I think that's my favorite on the, on the list. What about Special you, Sean? Mention of number three, Find Your Next. It was done by a very eloquent and interesting uh, person. Um, I believe her name was Andrea Cates. Um, so promoting you on that one. Well, thanks. And what's interesting about that is that it, it was one of the first th thoughts around um, cross-industry 
as as a big idea. And certainly in the last nine years, that's that's come to you know fruition. Uh, next thing around business models and ecosystems, this is the new generation of thinking around innovation, right? Like this is starting to get at the innovation plus plus that we keep talking about. Um, fascinating list of uh, 15 books here. Um, I know I'll give credit to one of the pioneers, Osterwalder, and his business model generation book was a really formative um, thought process. Just that nine, that graphic of a nine part model of this is what a business model looks like um, kind of got kind of emboldened in my head. Any, any ones that you're Just looking at Just in the interest here? of time, I'm, I'm gonna agree with that one. I, I remember that I thought it's the dawning of a new age when I was working with the CEO of a very conservative insurance company. And I walked into the CEO's office and he had that book on his shelf. And it, you know, it's a picture that, it's a book that has pictures and graphics. And I thought, wow, there, this is a big idea because it's a very different looking book it was a different way of developing a case study. And I think it, it started, it was the dawning of a new era. All right, one book that I love, 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 I think it was on a top three business book list from last year, Range and Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. Conversely, um, you're a big fan of Satya Nadella and uh, his book Hit Refresh is, uh, I think, front and center on your bookshelf. Yeah, I mean, if Sachin Adele is listening, we, we, we really want to work with you. Um, <laughs> there's, this notion, there's this notion that a company um, can change and, you know, we say it, but to actually sit in the driver's seat and do it, I think was challenging. And I, I think he talks about it well. I think that it did start from inside. So, yeah, we're, we're big fans of the approach and it gives us all hope that no matter how large our company has gotten, hitting refresh and we call it, you know, being in a state of perpetual refresh is critical. And we're going to post this entire list of books online. Uh, I, I don't know if people are screen grabbing right now, but um, you know, certainly uh, we'll be able to do that. Uh, one of my faves machine platform crowd. I mean, I think they've really nailed it in terms of the three variables that um, are playing in our digital future. You had, uh, I like Bina's book, Bina Venkataraman, who, um, I was fortunate to be on the same stage with at Aspen Institute a few years ago. Now she's, I think with the Boston Globe and at MIT, her, her, no, her view is somewhat in terms of social impact and how communities can take action, um, to make change happen. But I think that the, the research based view of leaders anywhere being able to decide that you need to do it differently. Uh, her ways of looking at this and the sort of falling in, you know, looking at options other than scenario planning of how to make change happen. I think she, she did a really great job of documenting. And here's a set of 15 different books about futures, trends, and emergent texts. And we just mentioned two of them that uh, we thought were, were high, uh, high value. And the last set, um, I had a tough time classifying any of these books because they fall into either a general or classics category. Uh, to this day, I think Moneyball should have won the Academy Award in the year that it had. Um, but also, it's not a book about baseball. It's such a book about looking at a different situation and looking at completely different than the 29 other kind of entities within your industry. You had playing to win, which is interesting. I've, uh, I've met A.G. Laffley before, a brilliant, brilliant man. Uh, you have that on your list. Yeah, and uh, I think A.G. Laffley and uh, Roger Martin, you know, the, you have to figure out where to play and how to win. And I, I, I just think it's, it's simply stated, changed the course of thinking in a lot of corporate 
and uh, team with a lot of teams. So uh, I, I think it's well done. I think it's simple to read and, and important. And what book isn't what book list isn't complete without Dr. Seuss? I think Green Eggs and Ham has a lot to point to in terms of accepting something that you at the outset probably didn't like too much. I do not like Green Eggs and Ham. I do not like I'm Sam I Am. Oh, such great, great language. <laughs> well, and I I read Daniel Pink's uh, comment about the uh, the New York City Library, the books that were. Uh, checked out most often and most of them were children's books it was pretty interesting you know <laughs> and a few of the uh, other 10 classics or general ones that were really tough to actually um put onto a uh, one or another category um housekeeping stuff 30 seconds we got a whole bunch of research projects going this year if you're interested in the future work please get in touch with us because uh we have a group of about 40 some odd people that are about to embark on something brilliant and interesting Next slide, we have a book, it's coming out, it's coming out February 10th. Uh, we will spell that one correctly when we, um, we launch the book, um, but uh, it's a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of something else, and hopefully you'll really enjoy it. And there'll be more about that uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, we have a set of 66 champions that we're minting over the next uh, little while, and we're, we're gonna meet for the first time this month with some of them. And then finally, um, I guess, Andrea, we've got uh, two weeks from now, we're going to be doing our next webcast, and it's AI and the new dimension of innovation, so how it changes how we innovate. So uh, look really forward to that. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the whole year, and I know we're closing out. Uh, I don't know if there are any questions in the chat. I'm, I'm not able to see them. But um, one of the things that I think is really great about kicking off the year optimistically, but then going right into AI and the dimension of innovation the new dimension of innovation is that we have an opportunity to dig right into the dark side of where all of this could go wrong. First thing. <laughs> so as we look at what, what's really happening, it's a huge change. If we look even 10 years ago, AI and machine learning really wasn't at the level of applica applicability. So I'm excited about just learning and, and sharing and having a community of people that can give us the facts, give us perspectives, and be, once again, very practical in what we as business leaders can do to not just talk about AI, but to apply it and to stick to our principles as we figure out how to be a trustworthy guardian of the power of AI. I have nothing further to add. I think that's eloquently stated. Um, so we'll see you in about another two weeks. Um, all of these things reside at Future Proofing Now. We're still getting some of our previous episodes up and running on our page, but we've now entered into our second season. You can get them at futureproofingnext.com, Future Proofing Now. Um, I want to thank Andrew once again. I want to thank Joanne for uh, jumping online. And as well, I want to thank the people that have chimed in to our episodes and joined the community that um, is so important to us. So uh, until two weeks, uh, we will see you in the future.